Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Part of our Advent sermon series as we consider in Advent this miraculous truth of the creator of the universe becoming human, taking on uh, a human nature in the person of Jesus. What we're considering is what are the implications of that truth for us? How should we think about being human? What does this mean for um, us as we think about this question? We began the series with a discussion on the dignity of being human, looking at the psalm to be reminded that we're crowned with glory and honor. Last week, we considered the tragedy of being human, how sin has affected our humanity, and in particular, how that outplays or shows itself in domestic abuse situations. So that's what we looked at last week. Uh, These messages are online if you didn't hear them and you want to. And so here we are in the third sermon in this series, and so this morning we're considering the ethics of being human. Now, by ethics, what I mean are those actions and attitudes that we adopt that receive God's blessings. I think we're going to say it just about that simply. Actions and attitudes that receive God's blessings. Those things that we should consider morally good. And very often when we talk about ethics, we end up getting kind of controversial, quite frankly, because people have very strong feelings about ethical questions, and there are a variety of opinions about what positions to hold. And this question of what it is to be human definitely brings up a lot of ethical questions. And so that's what we're going to consider here this morning. As Christians, we are not to be people who go out and seek and create controversy. Um, But at the same time, we should be people who don't shy away from it when we are called upon to proclaim what the Scriptures teach about some of these issues. I want to share with you something Martin Luther said many years ago. Maybe you've seen this, but... uh, Luther said, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christianity, where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. Where the battle rages, that's where the loyalty of the soldier is proved. Where the battle rages, that's where the controversy is. And it's easy to want to withdraw from that and not tangle and certainly understandable. But what Luther is saying is that we have to be willing to engage in these issues that our world is talking about. And I would suggest that one of the points that the world and the devil are attacking the most in our culture and in our world and in our society today is the question of what it is to be human. What makes us human and what are the implications that come from that. So, today's sermon is going to be uh, quite a bit different than we do normally here at New Life. Most frequently we like to just open up a text and just stick with that one text. Uh, Today's sermon is going to be very topical, okay? So we're going to begin by looking at a very brief text, but that will simply be the foundation on which we will consider other texts that will teach us about some of these 
issues. And I just confess, I had some struggle kind of considering that maybe there's too much to cover here. I'm going to be talking about a lot of different uh, topics here today, but um, what I want you to see is the connection between the view of the body and the controversial ethical issues that our world tangles on in these days. There's a very direct correlation and link between the two, so I want to point that out. So, 1 Corinthians 6 is our text. If you're able to stand, please do so. I'm going to just be reading the last couple of verses, 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. This is a letter of Paul. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He is addressing the issue of sexual immorality, and he's making this point that um, <clears throat> when someone engages in sexual immorality with a prostitute, for instance, there is a union with the body of the prostitute so that the person who commits this sin sins against his own body. So, Paul is making this point about sexual immorality, its connection to the body, and then he says this, verses 19 and 20, he says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So, glorify God in your body. Holy Spirit, please open our eyes to behold wonderful things in Your Word and give us ears to hear and eyes to see by Your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> okay, so let, let's just look at this text here real quick and then we'll, we'll get into some of these issues. But there are two things to draw from what Paul is saying here, and uh, the first one has to do with this comparison that Paul makes between the body and the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, you probably know what the temple was in the Old Testament. That was the place where God's people gathered to meet with God. The temple was considered to be a, a sacred place, a very unique, special, holy place. And what Paul is saying is that your body is like that. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It, it's, a, it's a place in which God Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit resides and lives. I mean, just, just think about that for a moment. Your body is a place where God wants to live. You know, God is a holy and perfect God who keeps Himself separate from sin and evil and wickedness, and yet He wants to live inside you. Your body, a temple of the Holy Spirit, that, that is teaching us an extremely high view of the human body. But Paul also says <clears throat> at the end of verse 19, you are not your own. Now talk about a view that is contrary to positions that are held in our culture today where people consider that they have the freedom to do whatever they want with their body. What Paul is saying here is, no, you are actually not your own. You belong, first of all, to God in creation. He's the one who created you and gave you a body to begin with. But here we see to you, Christian, you were bought with a price. You belong to God through redemption as well. You've been redeemed, you've been purchased, and an expensive price was paid for you in the giving of Jesus for your salvation. And so you belong to God by creation and by redemption. You're not your own. You belong to Him. Therefore, what Paul says here at the end of verse 20, 
glorify God in your body. Because of these things, you can glorify God in your body. The way you use your body, think about your body, should bring honor and praise to God. That is, you should guard the sanctity of the body. You should protect the body from defilement because the body is holy and precious in the Christian worldview. Okay? So that's, that's, kinda, that, that's foundational teaching here about the body. From that, we're going to consider a few issues. We're going to talk about glorifying God in the body in the midst of life, glorifying the body at the start of life, and glorifying the body at the end of life. Okay, so those three things. First of all, we're going to talk about glorifying the body at the start of life, honoring the body, bringing glory to God through the body at the start of life. So first of all, as we think about the start of life, of course, what we're thinking about is the unborn. The unborn are formed in the womb. That's where the body is formed. Uh, By the way, there was a sermon delivered on the question of abortion back on July 3rd. Um, You can go to our website and hear that if you want a more extensive treatment on that issue. We're not going to repeat that material here today, but I wanted to draw your attention to that. But the text that we looked at that Sunday was Psalm 139. And in that psalm, we learn that we're woven together in secret, our bodies put together, assembled by God in the womb, in secret, in the womb. And there's a a Christmas text or an Advent text that actually um, fortifies this position. It comes from Luke chapter 1. This is uh, Elizabeth who is speaking to Mary, after Mary has been impregnated by the Holy Spirit, and Elizabeth says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord, Elizabeth talking to Mary, should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So in this little text, we have two unborn children. The one is referred to here at the end when Elizabeth says, the baby in my womb. That's referring to Uh, John the Baptist, and notice that Elizabeth refers to John as the baby. Excuse me. Not Not a fetus or a bundle of tissue, but a baby, a human being. The baby in my womb leaped for joy. But notice also that Elizabeth says, at the beginning, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord, my Lord is referring to the baby in Mary's womb. And so here, Elizabeth is referring to an unborn baby, the baby Jesus, as her Lord, a human being. Now, why in the world would this be such a debatable thing in our culture today? Because there is agreement among almost all bioethicists and scientists that unborn babies are human beings. That that is really not debated, that the unborn child in a womb has a full set of chromosomes, a unique DNA, a genetic code, all established, all of which constitute that unborn baby as a human being. And so we could even quote someone like this, Dr., uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce that first name, Micheline, Micheline, not sure, Michelin 
Matthews Roth from the Harvard Medical School who says this, it is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception. And this developing human always is a member of our species in all stages of its life. This is not from a church or for some Christian ethicist. This is the agreed-upon position of the scientific community. So, why are people so eager to support the right to abortion? Because what they're basically doing is supporting the right to kill a human being. Right? There, there used to be this argument saying, well, the fetus is not a human being. That's what makes it okay to, to abort. But we've come to understand that, no, the unborn is a human being. And yet there are still people who say, well, abortion should be okay. In other words, it should be okay to kill a human. That's what many people are saying. That's basically what the pro-choice position is saying. So how, how can they say that? And here's how. Here's how. Because the position, the argument that is being made today is that being human is not enough. That you must also be a person. There is a distinction that is made between the two so that a new category has been created, the human non-person. And so th this is the, the only way to get out from under this troubling implication of abortion being the killing of a human. That is to say the human can lack something that would make it justifiable to take its life. And that thing that is lacking, according to these people, in some cases is personhood. And so this theory is called personhood theory, the idea that being human is not necessarily being a person. So Christian view would be the human being is an integrated whole, soul and body united. Personhood theory would say that there is a profound split between the person and the body, that the person is actually the authentic self, the thing that really matters, whereas the body is something inferior and to be used however one wants, even if it needs to be disposed. There's a split between person and body, between mind and physical body. You might think of it like a, an automobile. You probably all have a car. I doubt any of you thinks of your car as something that is intrinsic to your humanity or intrinsic to your personality. You, you get in your car when you need it, and you take your, the, the car takes you to where you want to go, and when you get to that place, you get out of the car and you leave it behind. And in fact, eventually you're going to sell that car, or maybe get a Another one, the car is just not that essential. It's just this thing you use for a particular purpose. Personhood theory presents the body that way. The body is like a car. So Nancy Piercy says this, Christianity holds that body and soul together form an integrated unity. By contrast, personhood theory entails a two-level dualism that sets the body against the person, which ultimately dehumanizes all of us. Because here's the problem, friends. Here's the problem with this view. The question has to be raised. How do we define a person? If we're going to separate the body from the person, the human from the person, the question is raised. How do we define a person? How do we know what a person is? How do we know who qualifies? And so lots of ideas are thrown out. Some people say, well, once 
once the unborn baby can feel pain, then that baby has transferred from human to human person. Or some say, well, when the baby reaches a certain cognitive ability, when the baby reaches a certain level of intelligence, when when the baby achieves a certain self-awareness, when uh, the baby has a sense of the future. These are all ideas. They're all thrown out. Everybody's scrambling to try to figure out a way to decide who is a person and who is not. And the problem is we don't have agreement on that. And so we can see this even in the writing of someone like Justice Harry Blackman. This is in the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision, 1973. So this kind of thinking has been going on for a long time. 1973, he says, the word person is used in the 14th Amendment, does not include the unborn. If the suggestion of personhood is established, the fetus right to life would then be guaranteed. So he's saying if we can show that the fetus, the unborn, is a person, then there's no way we should allow abortion to take place. That's, that's what he's saying. But the problem is, according to his view, is the unborn is not a person, and therefore abortion should be legal, and people should have a right to take the lives of the unborn. This is where the battle is being fought, friends, as Luther said. This is it. This, it's an intellectual thing. I, I get it. And maybe you're thinking this is so scholarly, so abstract. But I'm telling you, this, this is where the battle of ideas is taking place. And there are life and death consequences to this particular debate. The, the reason that this is so absolutely urgent is because if we lose a biblical view of what it is to be human by pinning it on this definition of person then it's all going to depend on whoever it is who defines whether you're a person or not. That's the person who has the power to decide whether you live or die. So who do you want making that decision for you? You want the Supreme Court deciding whether you're a person or not? You want Congress deciding that? You want the President of the United States deciding whether you're a person or not? I mean, if if we depart from the biblical view, someone's going to step in and make that decision for you. And that person or those people who do that are going to be the ones with the most power. And so this is, this is, this is serious. It's serious. And we need to be aware of this debate and be prepared to engage and I want to show you here that the biblical view is so much more inclusive, inclusive. Think of how exclusive the pro-abortion view is, because what it basically says is that there are some humans who don't measure up. There are some humans that are not good enough. They don't make the cut. They haven't passed the test. They're expendable. We can get rid of them. That, that's the implication of this view, depending on how you view personhood. But the, the biblical view is saying, no, all human beings are in. All human beings have dignity. All human beings are crowned with glory and honor. All human beings are made in the image of God. All human beings in the womb or out of the womb have a right to live. And so let's make that case as we seek to glorify God, as we glorify and honor the body at the start of life. Well, let's go on to another issue, glorifying the body in the midst of life. 
in the midst of life. Now, okay, this is, opens up a multitude of things we could talk about, but the issue that I'm going to address uh, under this point uh, is one that relates very specifically to how we view and handle our body, and it's the issue of the transgender debate that goes on in our world. So let's take a look at another text. Here's Matthew 19, verses 1 through 4. Pharisees come up to Jesus. They test Him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And He answers, have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife? So, you know, we can go to Genesis and see how we are created male and female. Here is Jesus in the New Testament affirming what Genesis has taught us, that God has made our bodies in a particular way, and that is that there are two genders represented throughout humanity, male and female. These genders are not assigned by a doctor in the hospital. When a child is born, these genders are assigned by God from all eternity as He has determined how He is going to make each one of us. He has made us male and female. Now, again, when we depart from revelation like this, where God speaks to us and teaches us and tells us things, when we depart from this and put this aside and say, no, we're going we're to do this on our own and figure it out on our own, the result is total pandemonium and chaos. And uh, so, for instance, here's a, a fa very famous philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre, who said, there is no human nature because there is no God to have a conception of it. Man is nothing else but that which he makes of himself. So, the philosopher here is saying that if there is no God, there is no human nature. We don't have any idea what is a human and what is not. And if we don't have any idea what is human and what is not, we just make it up on our own. We make it up by ourselves. Man is nothing else but that which he makes of himself. And friends, don't you see, this is some high-minded philosopher that nobody reads, and yet this is the idea that so many in our culture and nation and society believe. This is, this is the, the high-minded, ivory tower philosophical idea that your neighbor and coworkers and friends have adopted. Man is whatever he makes of himself. This is what drives the transgender movement, this idea that subjective feelings can sometimes clash with our physical body, it's called gender dysphoria, and the conclusion that is then drawn is that the person dealing with this difficulty has been born in the wrong body. And so just as with the abortion issue that we just talked about, remember the personhood theory, there's a split between mind and body. When there is an opposition between the two, rather than changing subjective feelings to adapt to the body, the body is being adapted to the changing subjective feelings. Because it's the feelings and the ideas of what a person wants to be that is, that is reigning. There's dissonance between feelings and the body, but the feelings win. <laughs> In all cases when it comes to this issue, and the body is dismissed. So again, Nancy 
Piercy, this book, Love Thy Body, I'd highly recommend it to you on this issue. She says this, if the meaning of our sexuality is not something we derive from the body, then it becomes something we impose on the body. Sexual identity is reduced to something completely disconnected from the body. That's, that's the philosophy, that's the idea that is driving the transgender movement. I heard about this video, it's from the BBC, um, it came out a few years ago, a person was being interviewed who was transitioning and uh, she said, it doesn't matter what meat skeleton you're born into, it's what you feel that defines you. It doesn't matter what meat skeleton you were born into. I mean, just think about the way the body is being described there. A, a meat skeleton. Remember what Paul wrote. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this person is saying the body, no, is nothing but a meat skeleton. Did, did you hear the, the denigration, the demeaning of the human body in that statement? The body's irrelevant. The body tells me nothing about myself. What tells me about me is what I think of me and how I want to create myself to be. You know, there are some things that never change, and basically what all of this is is an ancient heresy called Gnosticism. That This is just Gnosticism with different clothes on. But Gnosticism was a very ancient heresy that had this very low view of the body. And Gnosticism, the idea is that the body is, is disposable. The body is a meat skeleton. Uh, the body is unimportant. It is inferior. Salvation is actually found in escaping from the body, leaving behind the physical, and going into this entirely spiritual realm. That's the view of Gnosticism. And this issue of Gnosticism was being challenged in the New Testament. The word isn't actually mentioned, but you see it in texts like 1 John 4, where John says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and that just means in the body, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. John's litmus test for the real true gospel is to believe that Jesus came in a body, that God took on a body. This is, there, there's nothing that commends the body more than the idea that God would become a man. And yet there were Gnostics who said, no way, there's no way a holy, almighty, infinite God would stoop so low as to take a body to himself. Because bodies are awful, they're disposable, they're unimportant, and we're trying to get away from these bodies, why would God take residence in one? But at the very heart of the gospel, at the very heart of Advent and Christmas, is God takes on a body and lives among us on this earth. And that's what we're seeing here, I think, in the transgender issue, is just this resurgence of Gnosticism. One way, friends, to glorify God in our body is not by changing the body to match our feelings, but by conforming our feelings to match the body that God has given to us. There are lots of statistics out there that say 80 to 90 percent, and in some statistics as many as in 98 percent, 98 percent of the cases when young people experience gender dysphoria, 80 to 90 percent of the time, by the time they reach adulthood, those feelings have gone away. 
and they find themselves content with the body that God gave them. So to say that we should conform our feelings to our body is not asking too much. And it's very possible to do. So what, what, can, what can we do in this situation? It's such a big topic, but friends, I, I would just say this. You know, if, if, you're, if you know people who experience gender dysphoria, let, let me just affirm that this is a real thing. The people do deal with this, and it, it must be very painful, it must be very difficult, it must be very hard. And I don't want to minimize the battle that some people in, deal with, with gender dysphoria. And so, <clears throat> as Christians, we, we don't want to dismiss this, we don't want to laugh at it, we don't want to make light of it. it it's real. People, real people, made in the image of God and crowned with glory and honor, deal with this. We should listen to them. We should sympathize with them. We should befriend them. But we can also tell them what it is to be a human being, as the Scriptures teach us. And I would say also, something else we can do is, is beware of stereotypes, because sometimes you might have girls who are kind of interested in boy things, or boys interested in kind of girl things and they think they're born in the wrong body, when actually what might be happening is that it's just wrong stereotypes have been imposed on them. You know, it's okay for a man to want to cook, and it's okay for a woman to want to play soccer. That there, there is a diversity of ways we can express ourselves within our genders. You know, one of the typical stereotypes is that men are aggressive and women are gentle, and yet what does the Scripture say about Jesus? He was gentle and lowly in heart. The greatest man who ever lived, gentle. Define a lot of the stereotypes we have about what it is to be male and female. So, there's an issue. we got one more. Glorifying the body at the end of life. At the end of life. I was very sad to hear recently a a musician that I, that I know of, a guy named Anton Fear, um, who died last month at the age of 66. So I was very surprised to see this. Um, and then I saw the cause of death, and it was assisted suicide. And so I started to research this a little more, like what was going on with Anton Fear. And I, I found out he, he, he did not have a terminal illness, he was not in any pain. He just decided he had completed life. And so he went to Switzerland and he found a clinic where this kind of assisted, uh, assisted suicide is, is legal. He found a clinic. Somebody in that clinic killed him. It's legal there. He decided his life was completed. And this clinic agreed and took his life. Psalm 139. All the days adorned for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The one who decides when life is completed is not your doctor, not some clinic in Switzerland, and not even you, but God Himself. He's the one who has determined when your days begin and when your days end. But in this issue of end-of-life care and euthanasia, it's the same sinister idea at work. Being human is not enough. That when people get to the end of their lives, then they need to achieve or meet some particular standard, some productivity, some cognitive level, some self-awareness. 
that they need to reach. And if they don't reach that, then they're considered by some in our culture to be expendable. Peter Singer, this is a professor at Princeton University. The concept of a person is distinct from that of a member of the species Homo, homo sapiens, distinct from being a human. And this is, he says, most significant in determining when it is wrong to end a life. What he's saying is, if you can conclude that an elderly person has lost the properties, characteristics of a person, we can kill them. Peter Singer, Princeton University. I mean, I don't mean to be morbid here, but I just want you to know that these ideas are out there. I saw this article in, the, in, uh, in Britain, I don't know if it was on the BBC, it was an article that uh, a British writer wrote, and she said, I hate to even say this, but this is what she said, we got too many old people in the world, it's ridiculous to live in a country where we can put dogs to sleep and not people. Now, I, that, that's shocking and it's alarming, and, and you'd think, well, that's just one person, Friends, ideas have consequences, and so let me repeat it again. I know that these ideas are discussed in scholarly areas that it seems very philosophical and abstract, but friends, what the scholars are talking about today is what your friends and neighbors and children will believe tomorrow. It, it trickles down. There are things we believe today that no one would have ever imagined we would believe a hundred years ago, but the scholars were talking about it a hundred years ago, and they're embraced today. And so there is this view now circulating about when it's okay to end a person's life. In Holland, there are euthanasia vans that will just come to your house and kill you if you want to die that way. I want you to know, friends, that in the, biblical, in the biblical view, whatever happens to you in your future, you might wind up with dementia, you might have Alzheimer's, you might be in a wheelchair, you might be bedridden, but you will still be you. You will still be a person of dignity. You will still be crowned with glory and honor. The image of God will continue to reside in you. And even at that point in your life, you will deserve respect and love and care. And as a church, we will seek to provide that even if our world doesn't. Isn't this a, a great proverb, 1631? Gray hair is a crown of glory. <laughs> it is gained in a righteous life. We, we live in a culture that just you know, celebrates youth. We love young people too, okay? We love young people too, but... You know, sometimes I get this question about churches. How many young people are you attracting to your church? We're glad we attract young people. But, you know, another mark of a good church is a church that retains the old people, that keeps the elderly and cares for them as well. It's not just about the young. A guy named Dan Darling, Dignity Revolution, says this, In God's economy, the most helpless resident of an assisted living facility has as much value as the most virile athlete performing at peak performance. Every life is valuable, and every life is eternal. So, how do we show our love for, for the elderly? I would just encourage you, don't, don't, don't look past them here at, at New Life. I, I just want to say to, to the elderly here, I mean, whether you're willing to admit you're elderly or not, I don't know, and, uh, 
but to those older than me, we'll say, I just want you to know, we, we love you, and we're glad that you're here, and we don't want to look past you. We've, we value you at New Life. And it just so happens in God's providence that um, we have a ministry to the elderly that takes place here at the church. It's at a place called Signature Healthcare on uh, North Walnut. And so some of us are, are going to that place this afternoon at 2 o'clock um, to visit and, and be with the elderly there in that place. Uh, some people who uh, are, are perhaps very infrequently visited, some people who are perhaps forgotten uh, by our world, but, but we're not going to forget them. So we're going out at 2 o'clock. You're welcome to, to join us, 2 o'clock Signature Healthcare. So I, I told you that was a lot. These are hard issues, and, and you know, I just feel like just skimmed the, the surface of, of these. There's so much more to be said about each of these issues, I, I know, but I, but I hope you've been able to see that an undervaluing of the human body in, 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 in contrast to what the Scriptures teach can lead to some very dangerous things. And the Scriptures teach us to exalt the body, to appreciate the body, to, to value it, to care for it, to, to, to guard it. And maybe you're thinking, I, I haven't always taken good care of my body. Maybe you're thinking, I haven't always been super respectful uh, to other people's bodies. I haven't honored other, other bodies. Let me just leave you with this thought. Here's how, here's how Jesus glorified God in His body. He gave it up on the cross. He died. He gave up that body as a sacrifice, bled out of His human body to cover your sin, whatever sin that is to cover your shame and all of your guilt. But he didn't just die, he, he was raised from the grave in a body. <laughs> and that's an exciting thing to consider, and that has to do with the future of being human, and that's what we'll talk about next week. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you that um, you've given us bodies, and forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we have not cared well for our bodies, but... I pray, Lord, that you would give us a deep heart of compassion and grace um, to all those who struggle with some of these questions. Father, I pray that we could be people who fight for the right of the unborn, but also who come alongside those who struggle with the decision about whether to abort a baby or not. Help us to care for them. Lord, help us to care and show love and grace and mercy toward those struggling with gender dysphoria, confused about this. Lord, help us to be a blessing to them. And Lord, help us to show forth in this congregation how much we value and love the elderly among us. So thank you, God in heaven, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.